Good to be back with you. Last week we started uh, the letter to the Colossians from Paul. We got a glimpse into one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible and how to apply it personally to our lives. And so today we're picking right up in verse 15 all the way to 23, and we here have the bullseye. We have in this passage the focal point, the singular, strongest, Christological passage in all of Scripture. Important because the Colossian church had been infected with a heresy that a bunch of teachers began to teach where they would take the gospel from Paul, but they'd blend in um, pagan spirituality ideas, and, and, and the blender spit out something called Gnosticism, and, and what happened is they radically re-envisioned who Jesus was as a result. And just like any other cult or any other religion that wants to have Jesus somewhere in the lineup, in order to do that, they have to radically re-envision Jesus to fit uh, in a way that doesn't fit with the Bible. And um, when you do that, it becomes a Jesus that is quite comfortably and non-offensively able to fit into any spiritual worldview. Now, before we jump into the passage ahead of you, uh, um, I'm going to put it up on the screen. I want you to visually see it. You don't, don't have, you don't have to read it. I don't expect you to catch it all. Just look at it. I want you to just see the immensity of it. It's a big block of scripture, packed with doctrine from Paul that like every phrase is like a separate sermon, frankly. And, um, you know, how do you digest that? How do you break it down and apply it? You're just, you know, we're just a- a- average Joes here. We're not fancy theologians. What do you do with that and get something out of it? Now, I'm going to do something here to help you a little bit. I- I'm a very visual person. And um, I, like, I like to kind of see things in color. I like to use colors to help me break up complex uh, things, to simplify things, to see what stands out. And one of the things I do when I'm studying scriptures, this is why I'm one of those guys that marks up my Bible a lot. <laughs> and uh, I do that because it helps me break it down. And, and, and there's just a little tip for you. If you're studying the Bible and you want a place to start, look for repeated phrases and words, especially with Paul. Pay attention when you do that. For example, check out this slide. Okay, Notice in green how often you see he is, he has, he, and his. Right away, don't even know, I don't even need to know the content of that passage. Already I have a clue. Paul's going to be making some very definitive statements about Jesus. They're declarative. This is proclamation. This is teaching. It's truth, and it's about him, he. He is. Now check out this next slide. 
I chose neon pink just for fun. Um, but these phrases are what we call prepositions. Uh, they're the phrases that say things like by him, through him, in him, for him, to him. Do you get the idea? Right away, I don't know what the passage is saying, but I'm noticing. I'm noticing that whatever he's about to say about Jesus, a bunch of things are happening that have a cause and effect from Jesus. Okay, check out this next slide. Uh, yellow. Paul uses the phrase all things a lot here. I've never seen anything like it in, in, in the New Testament. So condensed. All things are all. So what we do know from this is that something about Jesus over all things is where he wants to take us. And then this final slide, let's, let's slam it all together into a mishmash. And you can see all the color. What, what do we have here? Some of you are like, uh, it looks like my grandkids got the Crayola box out and just sort of messed up the Bible. No, what we have here is an idea, uh, just a visual about Paul is going to pound the nail on Jesus hard here. And he's doing it for a reason because he knows that these mystics have brought in some very plausible arguments and he ain't taking a risk. So, we're going to get a big picture of Jesus, maybe more than you've ever seen. You may be here today and you're not a Christian. Um, you're you're going to hear some stuff about him that just maybe you, you never even knew we believed. You're like, wow, Christians believe that? Maybe you're here as a believer, maybe for some time. And somehow through the routines of your life, you're no longer blown away by him. I mean, there was a time when he amazed you, but now it's just become kind of routine. Maybe you put him in a box, I don't know. You need to be re-amazed by Jesus Christ. And I just want to walk through this passage and allow Paul and what he's saying to, to do that. So I'm going to pull out four big things here to help you become re-amazed with Jesus or perhaps for the first time amazed at him. Okay, that's where we're going today. Let's start with this first thing. Uh, he is the supreme God over all things. You already know where I got the term all things because we, we had it in color there. But notice in verse 15 how he starts. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's a statement. Now that word image is the word from which we get our English word icon. You've heard the word icon. And the idea of an icon is kind of a, of a statue. Um, a super a, a, a likeness to something, uh, but here it means something more than just a superficial likeness. When the Bible says that Jesus is the image of God, it means that he is the exact replica or representation of God the Father. Now, let's follow along. Notice this next phrase, the firstborn of all creation. That phrase, firstborn, often means highest in rank, and privilege. Now, let's think back to the ancient world here. We'll go 2,000 years ago. Um, to be the firstborn in your family was a big deal. 
back then. And in um, uh, many cultures around the world still today, the firstborn son often would get special privilege, special rank, special favor. And back then it became so common across that part of the world that eventually the phrase firstborn uh, came to describe any person who had the highest rank or privilege in a family or family, large family grouping, not um, always even the firstborn himself. It was, it was, became more of a rank. Now, there's a lot of controversy in the Colossian heretics and the uh, other cults, uh, and it would happen over the next several hundred years, a lot of controversy over that phrase, the firstborn of all creation. And here's why. It Uh, They used it to create a false doctrine that Jesus is not God. He is just one of the created things or beings that God created. He is the highest and best created by God, but not God himself eternal. I'll give you some examples. Um, A Jehovah's Witness uh, passage uh, says this, the phrase son of God, refers to Jesus as a separate created being, not as part of the Trinity. As the Son of God, he could not be God himself. There's a religion known as the Baha'i faith. They have a text that has this quote in it. Jesus was not the only begotten Son of God, nor the unique Savior. Was Christ within God or God within Christ? No. And then... In the Quran, there is an actual warning about viewing Jesus as anything more than a prophet. It says this, They do blaspheme when they say that God is Christ, the Son of Mary. And here's our warning. If they do not desist from their word of blasphemy, a grievous penalty will befall them. Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than a messenger. Many were the messengers that passed away before him. And in the words of George Costanza from Seinfeld, worlds are colliding here. I'm sure you can see that. We've got truth claim hitting truth claim And they all can't be saying the same thing and all be true. Now, the scriptures that we appeal to as our authority are relentless in setting the record straight. I mean, Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you were to... Uh, study the gospel of John about the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes so many big claims. I mean, in John 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I am going to prepare a place for you. I am coming back. I am the way, no one comes to the Father but by me. And the disciples are hearing all this teaching, but uh, a few verses later, Thomas uh, says to him, 
and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, he kind of says, uh, you know, Jesus, if, if you could just show us the Father, you know, if we could just see God the Father, then, then we'd really understand what you're saying. And Jesus says the most awesome thing to him. He's like, have I been with you so long and you don't know? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He's like, do you want to see the Father? You're looking at him. Anything you need to know about the Father, you can know by looking at me. You want to know about his character, his, 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 uh, his vision, his priorities, all that he has. Watch me. That's what Jesus is saying. And then John 1.18, speaking about the Father, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Listen, Jesus has many pretenders, but no parallels. He has many counterfeits, but no contenders. There are many imposters, but there is only one Emmanuel, God with us. And I would tell you, and I know this to be true from experience, you will never find a dearer friend. You will never find a more faithful Savior. You will never find a more awesome revelation of Almighty God than is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is supreme. There is none like him. You say, well, I've got a different plan. It's a bad plan, okay? Just going to be straight up with you. There is none like him. Paul wants you to see why, though. And he builds now with this next bold idea. Number two, he is the creator of all things. Notice verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now that phrase, all things, we already saw uh, when I brought it up in green or yellow uh, or one of those colors. Um, <laughs> creation shouts to the existence of God. And some people find this a little bit surprising. They say to themselves, you know, when I, when I think about the creation of the world or even that famous passage in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, I think about God the Father. Well, now the New Testament is giving us greater light. The specific instrumentality of creation is none other than the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, at some point in eternity past, looked over this ageless, spaceless chasm of nothing and spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke it into existence by the word of his power. You begin just for a moment to think of all that he created. Not just this earth, but the billions of galaxies. Can you even comprehend that? I can't. My brain can't get, a, get around that. Back to verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now those last few words there are referring to various ranks of angelic powers, okay? And 
The Jewish Christians, uh, that, the Jews that had become Christians, were still struggling. Some of them, some of them were starting to struggle with this idea that Jesus was equal to the God that they had known in the Bible, God the Father. And then the non-Jew, so Greeks, uh, Romans, and other uh, ethnicities, the Gentiles, who were influenced by uh, the Greek mysticism, well, they were, they were getting confused too, and they were starting to wonder if Jesus was just some incredibly powerful celestial being. That maybe he was the highest of the angels. And so everyone was basically like, you know, oh, can we reach a compromise? I mean, maybe Jesus was just like a, a super angel. Or, or, okay, we can negotiate. How, how about this? Jesus was the number one angel, the next one, like so far below him, we can't even talk about it. Various attempts have been made for the last 2,000 years to respect Jesus and keep him celestial somehow, but not God. And Paul here is kind of like, there's a, there's a little tone to Paul. He's like, we're going to get this straightened out, and we're going to get it straightened out right now. He ain't some superior angel, okay? He created the angels. That's what Paul's point is. Look at the end of verse 16. It says, all things were created through him and, note this, for him. Some people have a hard time with that. They're like, look, I can handle the fact that he created the universe. I have a hard time with him creating the universe for himself. I mean, isn't that a little bit arrogant? I mean, who does he think he is? His glory, his pleasure, his purpose? You know, if that's what you're thinking... You don't get it yet. The amazing thing is not that Jesus Christ created all of us for himself. The amazing thing is that he has chosen in his, in his incredible grace to provide a way for you and I to know him personally. Now, I just want you to think about your life for a sec. Pause, reflect on the last year, five years, 10 years, 20. Think about how faithfully he pursues you in spite of yourself. Think about his persistent love. How amazing is it that he doesn't just, every time we drop the ball, walk away and go, you know what, I've, I've had enough. Forget you. You don't make the cut. Listen, he is not here for us. We are here for him. That's the point. Our greatest joy and our greatest happiness can only be found in putting Jesus first in everything. All of the universe is channeling towards this singular, solitary being. Why does the sun continue to shine? For him. Why does Saturn have rings? For him. What's my life all about? For him. What am I to do with the remaining days of my life? Live for him. Philippians 2.10 says something. Many Christians know this. 
but it's a truth that you have to hear. It says, therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I read that verse and I I go, you know what? Now, now is the time to choose willingly to do that. Because there's a day coming. I believe you guys all just went through the book of Revelation with Pastor Dodd, right? So this shouldn't come as a shocker to you. But there's a day coming when every knee in heaven and on earth and below the earth is going to bow the knee to the true king. Everyone. My question to you is this. Will you be ready? Will you be ready to meet Jesus Christ the Lord? This is no small matter that I put before you. Now notice this next thing. He is the sustainer of all things. I mean, if being creator and eternal wasn't enough uh, to to get our heads around, Paul uh, puts, puts this in our path. Verse 17 And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things? He is, is what he's saying. He's saying, you go way back, 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 infinitely back. There's just one, God, eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ was there. He is not locked in time the way we are. He transcends space and time. I'm hoping by this point in the passage, you're starting to get the implications of what Paul's saying, and I'm hoping it's stretching your mind a little bit. Have you allowed your view of Jesus to be shaped by your own small picture frames? Have you allowed your view of Jesus to be altered by pressures from the world on how Jesus is to be understood. Paul's not content to leave you there. He just keeps pounding the theme in order to force you to be re-amazed. I mean, Paul's literally almost copying the writer of Hebrews at the beginning of the book when he says in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the power behind every mysterious force in the universe. Anything that science can study and measure, but can't ultimately give a reason why for, and think of some of them, dark matter, black holes, why, why the sun's atmosphere is hotter than its surface, why this itty-bitty earth hasn't been knocked off its course and continues to allow humans to live. Who is sustaining all of these things? Who understands them all? Scripture says Jesus upholds all things. Notice verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. I like that phrase. I mean, who else could be the head? Now, when you think of a body, the head, 
is the focal point for human activity. I mean, it's, it's what we see with, smell with, uh, it's what we talk with, it's how we think, it's uh, what we um, hear with, it's so central to the body. I mean, uh, put this way, what is a body without a head? We call it a corpse. Now, the question is, what is a church without Jesus as its head? It's a corpse. And I I don't say this with any pride or attempt to judge any church. I simply say what I see in Scripture. If Jesus Christ is not truly the head of that church, that's a problem. Tragically, we're seeing this so, so, so much in North America. Tragically, a lot of churches are corpses. Why? Because Jesus Christ is not acknowledged. He's He's not lifted high. He is not seen in his glory. He's not put first. He's not... Encouraged to be loved, adored, proclaimed. And when that happens, he's not the head. And as a result, that church is dead. Our heart has to beat for the supremacy of Jesus in all things. Now listen, as I say that, is there not some sense in which that causes your heart to stir a little? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit was sent into us as believers to speak of and stir up Jesus Christ in our lives. When Christ is lifted up, the Holy Spirit within you is going, yeah, pay attention, listen, grab that, more of him, more of him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's the work of the Spirit in you. In the middle of verse 18, He says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We've already covered firstborn, but he's now using it again. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Man, word upon word here just gets bigger and bigger. Um, Here's the interesting thing about that phrase. Jesus was not the first body to be resurrected. I mean, we've seen in the Bible A few resurrections. Jesus is responsible for a few of those. Every one of those people that he resurrected um, eventually died. I don't know how. Some of old age, perhaps. Um, Jesus is the only one who, after his resurrection, never died. In fact, it says in the Bible that he had victory over death and sin through the cross Oh, it even goes beyond that. He's the only one resurrected, never to die, and to have the power to pass that on to others who would believe in him. That's why Paul says he's the firstborn from the dead, preeminent in all of that. Listen, man, do you realize that if you are in Christ, you are never going to die? Sure, there's a day coming our bodies are going to give way this flesh, this outer form, but you will never die. 
Because that moment when you pass off the earth, you will be more alive than you've ever been before. There's no um, gap. There is no purgatory. There is no soul sleep. There is no blank nothingness. Absent with the body, present with the Lord, the Bible says. And then notice verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was, underline this, pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God Almighty was pleased to dwell. He is the Father's delight. As you read this with the focus on Jesus, 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 you may be thinking, yeah, what about the Father? Where is he in all of this? Doesn't, doesn't he get slighted by this? Isn't this somehow wrong, taking our passions off, off the Father and worshiping his Son? No! It blesses him. It honors him. He is pleased to hear these very words spoken to you right now. Every time the Son is lifted up, the Father is pleased by it. And the one thing that the Father wants you to do is to embrace his only Son as Jesus Christ, the Lord. I'll tell you something else. What displeases the Father is to skate by in life with an attitude that's sort of like, you know, I'm cool with Jesus. He was, he was a good dude good teacher, a rabbi, a prophet, whatever you want to say. I don't have any real deal problem with that. Um, don't necessarily believe he's God, but hey. Don't call yourself a Christian if that's your stance. Why? Because if that's your stance, your problem is, is with this book. His teachings in Scripture, Jesus himself, are clear. He views himself as God in the flesh. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The New Testament looks back on Jesus. The Gospels that we read are a testimony to his deity. If you're, a, if you're saying, I'm a Christian, but you don't believe Jesus is God... You are not a Christian in any semblance of the historic and biblical definition of that word. You've created some new meaning. I'll give you that. You've created new meaning for yourself, but that's not the Christian Christianity of the Bible. Okay, so what do I do with that? Well, here's the final thing. Let's see how Paul brings it home. Note this. He is the reconciler of all things. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, that's a tough verse. I'm going to tell you right now. So much in there. Whole book could be written about it. Um, but what I will say about this verse is this is one of those verses that, that some people have used to make dangerous doctrine. And what is sometimes done with this verse alone, taken out of context, is that people will look at it and go, hey, it, it says right here in your Bible, 
that Jesus reconciled the whole world to himself. So that means everyone is saved whether they know it or not. Wrong. That view is called universalism. Sadly, some churches believe that. It is false. And it's false because like a gazillion times in the Bible, uh, that view is rejected. We're even going to see like three verses later, one of those gazillion times uh, where that verse just cannot be reconciled at all. So then what does 20 mean? Why is it there? Is it just meant to confuse us? No. Remember, Paul's talking on a massive scale here. What Paul is doing in verse 20 is giving us the scope of Jesus's reconciliation. It has, I, I like the phrase, cosmic implications. Just like Jesus created and then sustains the universe, he's reconciling everything into himself under his rulership because of the power of the cross. Why does he have to do this? Well, do you remember creation? Adam and Eve, little problem there. Little disobedience, we got sin in the world. The Bible talks about that, it's called the fall. And as a result of that, Sin enters the world, everything gets ruined. All part of God's plan in a way that's mysterious. Only he understands all of it and has control of it. But it's called the fall. I can't describe this better than a theologian pastor by the name of Sam Storms. I want to put the quote up for you to read. Um, But he says this. Because of the fall of Adam... The unity, harmony, and consonance of the original creation have suffered a devastating rupture. The pristine beauty of Eden has been horribly marred. Disharmony was brought to bear on God's handiwork. Alienation between God and man, between man and man, between man and nature now characterizes the cosmos. In a word, the totality of creation is mired in disruption and suffers from what can only, one can only describe as moral, spiritual, and physical, I like this word, discombobulation. This is clearly Paul's point in Romans 8, verses 18 and 23, where he speaks of the creation being subject to futility. Paul is simply saying here in verse 20, There is no sphere of existence over which Jesus is not sovereign. And even though we can't see it right now, one day we will see it. This is pointing to the new heavens and the new earth to come. Now notice Paul moves now from this cosmic perspective right down to you and me. I love how he does this. It's so personal. Notice verse 21. He takes the all things and he applies it to us. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You know, so many verses in scripture talk about the before and after of Jesus. People before they met him, people after. Paul's life himself is one of the most incredible examples. I'll be talking about that a bit next week. 
There are only two relations or relationships in which human beings stand with God. You're either alienated from God or you are reconciled to him. That's it. Some of you are like, you know, this, this feels harsh, Paul. This is harsh. I know people who don't follow Jesus, but I can see them do things that on any level are decent, if not very good. You might even be here today as a Christian listening to this. Um, as a, you might be here as a non-Christian today listening to this, thinking, you know what? No, no, you got it wrong, man. I'm not hostile to God. Don't accuse me of that. I don't hate God or your God. I'm not at enmity with him. I just have my own way. I'm more of a, listen, you do you, I'll do me. Let's just keep the peace. Paul says here that if that's your posture, you're actually hostile in mind, and I'll tell you why. Because God won't accept indifference when it comes to Jesus. In, what is indifference? Indifference is, yeah, Jesus. That's indifference. And he equates that, by God's standards, with hostility. Because he wants every knee to be bowed to Jesus. He wants you to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord with all your heart and soul. He even goes on to say that the actions of those who do not believe in Jesus, well, he describes their deeds as evil deeds. Why? Because the things that they're doing in and of themselves are bad? Well, for some people, absolutely. We all know that there are some people who just do evil, wicked stuff. But there's also people who do things in and of themselves that we would go, that's not bad. True. Here's the thing, though. Apart from Christ, not a single one of us can do anything truly for the right motives, for the right reasons, for the right goal, with the right interest in serving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is God's standard. So you got to ask yourself, have you ever perfectly lived up to that standard in every one of your deeds? If not, it's, equ it's equated with evil deeds. You're like, well, that's tough. Well, God's holiness is so far above us, that's why. And if we're honest, we are intrinsically self-centered people. We are naturally disobedient to the law of God, to the law of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says this is the state of a person apart from Christ, alienated from God, hostile to him in their minds, and actually doing deeds that he would call wicked. If you compare them to God's holiness... Now, look, this is just one of those passages that a preacher knows that is, as soon as they open their mouth, they're going to offend some people. I've, I've known all week that this stuff here is offensive to some. And just hypothetically, just rhetorically here, are you, are you offended? By this, does my saying that you're unreconciled to God, a sinner not fit for his presence, does that bother you? 
Does, does that offend you? Do you say, I'm not that bad, I'm not a sinner, I'm a pretty good person compared to everyone else in Canada. I don't like this whole idea that you're laying down. My view of Jesus is respectful enough, and I don't need you pushing your narrow-minded requirements on me. Now look, if you read the Gospels, Jesus' words himself and that's your view, he would say you're far from the kingdom of God because of that view. But if there's anyone who says, I'm unworthy, I, I, I get it. Around Jesus, I'm unclean, I'm unfit. I failed in so many ways. Jesus would say you're so close to the kingdom of God with that heart. That's the thing with the gospel. If you think you're far, you're near. If you think you're near, you're far. That's the, the counterintuitiveness of the gospel. And apparently, for those who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, there is a goal he has. Look in the middle of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, the goal is Jesus wants to, in the life that he's working in you, present you to God the Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's the purpose. These are words of comfort, by the way, for those who love Jesus. What does he mean by holy? He's saying you're clean. You've been cleansed by my blood from all sin. What does he mean by blameless? He means that you are now faultless because I stood in your place. There's no blemish in you whatsoever. No imperfection remains because of me. What does he mean when he says you're above reproach? It means that there's nothing anyone could charge you with before God about your character that is less than perfection in his eyes because of Jesus. There's just one condition. Verse 23. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, this uh, verse will either be very comforting for you, or it will create what I would call a good kind of fear, because the point is, if you really have it, there will be evidence if it's really there. So if you, if you are reconciled, or another way of saying it is, you are reconciled if you don't shift back into believing that your works save you. You are, work, you are reconciled if you don't shift back into thinking, I can save myself I'll come up with my own spirituality and that will be good enough for God. If you don't slip back into that, you're reconciled. If you don't shift back into a, look, I don't need Jesus for this. Some believers here may, be, may say, look, I, Leo, you're kind of talking to the wrong crowd here. I actually believe what you're saying. 
I believe what you're saying. Here's the problem. I'm not perfect. I, I make mistakes. I stumble. Sometimes I actually, look, I, I don't feel strong. I don't feel strong in the faith. Sometimes I don't feel steadfast. Sometimes it doesn't feel like hope. And I'm a believer. What am I supposed to do, Leo? What are you saying? Listen, he's not talking about perfection. He's talking about direction. We all have our struggles and battles with sin. Paul's saying to you, okay, with that, with those struggles, with those problems, with those burdens, are you looking to Christ for your strength? Are you trusting him? Are you resting on his work to complete it? Do you flee to him alone? Do you cast your cares and burdens on him? If so, I promise you on the authority of Christ, who is solely sufficient, that he will not cast you out. Scripture is clear. On this matter... And he wants you to take heart in knowing that God will work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Hebrews 13, 21. Be encouraged with the assurance that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1, verse 6. So that you will persevere and not shift from the hope of the gospel which you believed. That's a great anchor verse for us today. Now on the flip side, if you have no love for God, no desire to seek him, no desire to follow him in faith and obedience, if there's no understanding at all that you care about, that, that God saved you and that you don't save you, if none of that there, I'm telling you, there's serious reason to be concerned this morning. If you're here as a professing believer, a professing Christian, and you base that on the fact that you said a prayer 10 years ago at youth camp and have done nothing since, or you uh, went through confirmation at age 11, 12, or 13, depending on your denomination, or because of your Christians' families past? You have to ask yourself the question, was I ever really converted to Christ in the first place? Let me close with this. The Father's will for you is that we, for you embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's where this whole message is headed. Embracing him as Lord. Do you know in the New Testament, that word Lord appears 740 times? 740 times, Jesus is referred to as Lord. Lord means ruler, owner, master, sole authority. Do you know the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? And I'm telling you, if he is really Lord and Savior for you, it will mean not only a forgiven life, a freed life, but a life where you will want to worship. You will want 
to walk with him. You will want to grow. Not perfectly, as none of us are, but, but consistently, increasingly, over time, even in the ups and downs. But I will tell you this, you can't fake it. You can't play games with God and think you'll fool him. Without Jesus, I don't know how to say this better, you, you have nothing. I mean, let's think about it. Youth is fleeting. Wealth will eventually be passed to someone else. Gifts and abilities will decline or become worthless. Listen, without Jesus, you have nothing. So the question I just want to ask you today is, will you bow the knee to him? Have you ever in your life done this? As though God were pleading through me, I implore you, be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. He would receive you. No matter your past, no matter your family background, no matter what you've done, you could know him personally today. And your life would never be the same. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads here as an acknowledgement that you are Lord. That your son, Jesus Christ, is the Lord. And Lord, I know that your Holy Spirit has action plans and motives and desires and that he wants to affect today in everyone's life in different ways, ways I'll never know about, only you will. For some people here, it's strengthening and encouragement. Other people here, it's warning. Other people here, it's, it's uh, cheering on to hold on. And for some... It's coming to a place of going, today's the day. Today's the day. And if that is you today, today is the day to call out to him. To say, Lord, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I know that I need him. I know that I'm lost without him. I know that my sin means I deserve hell. I acknowledge that your son, Jesus, stood in my place to take what I deserved. And I'm now going to rest all of my faith, all of my hope, all of my trust on him. I'm banking it all on him. And I ask you now to come into my life. I receive the free gift of eternal life. And I pray that you would change me. I pray that you would save me. And I pray that you would cause me hope to constantly be looking forward to the day where I will see you face to face on that glorious day. Amen.